0: Hi, I'm Victoria Starik Samolin, co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, a new foreign affairs think tank based in the heart of London. And this is Geostrategy 360, our weekly podcast which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people and experts. In February 2014, due to the act of aggression by the Russian Federation against Ukraine, an international armed conflict began. Russia occupied and annexed Crimea and the city of Sevastopol, as well as parts of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. The territorial integrity of Ukraine has been affected ever since, with the aforementioned territories still under Russia's control and with military clashes still taking place. An unthinkable scenario on the European continent only a decade or two ago has been an agonizing reality for the past seven years. Today, I'm delighted to have an opportunity to present our guest, His Excellency Ambassador of Ukraine to the United Kingdom, Vadim Pristaiko, and to discuss the current situation in Ukraine, as well as in Eastern Europe and the Black Sea region. Over the years, Ambassador Pristaiko has held multiple prominent diplomatic positions, including the Ukrainian Ambassador to Canada, the Head of Mission of Ukraine to NATO, Foreign Minister of Ukraine, as well as Vice Prime Minister for Euro-Atlantic Integration. Ambassador Pristayko, welcome to Geostrategy 360.
1: It's my pleasure and honor, and thank you.
0: So it's been seven years of an ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia on the continent of Europe. Why are we still in this situation?
1: Huh. In more or less simple terms, the situation continues because Russia's true objectives have not been met yet, and I hope will not be met, regardless of who is in charge in Ukraine. Let's break this question into parts, shall we? Donbass first. You have heard the Kremlin talks about the so-called protection of Russian speakers in Ukraine, or so-called peoples of Donbass, Russian citizens of Donbass, Means those who Moscow gave hastily their passports and the rest of newborn republics which resist the fascist junta in Kyiv and so on and so forth. However, the Putins truly is after to undermine Ukraine's statehood and stop the country from pursuing the goals, constitutional goals, of integrating to NATO and EU. We are now in eighth year of the Russian Federation attempts to inject the Damascus proxies into Ukraine's domestic context. In simple terms, Moscow just aims to have a veto power over all the decisions of independent Ukraine, mostly, and including the international political moves. Now, Crimea, which is slightly a different case and a more multifaceted one, uh, Russia's goals in Crimea include, but are not limited to, to rewrite the history, to temporary boost uh, to Putin's popularity at home, a poke at a global security system, a punch at hard-won strategic balance in Europe an attempt to commandeer the Black and Azov Sea Equatory for natural resources which can be found there, maybe to cripple the Ukraine's economy a bit, or, of course, to, you know, to have a foothold in the future uh, approach encouragement into Ukraine and further into the area of the Black Sea. One thing is clear for both Donbass and Crimea, though. The approach is tried by us, all of us, I mean, as of far, based on international law and peaceful negotiations, have not been successful. We have to recognize it, admit this. The existing platforms and international efforts have failed to fulfill our expectations to expedite the settlement, at least of the conflict that Russia started. To achieve its goals, Russia has been trying to extricate itself from the Minsk agreements and substitute itself with so-called representatives of the temporary occupied territories in Ukraine. This is the idea to scramble itself as a mediator, not a party of conflict that has started and continues to fuel. Fortunately, the rest of the world still is not buying this line. Next point: if we take a look at the international mechanism in place, the Ukraine implementing the obligations under Minsk and Normandy agreements. The next steps should be expected from Russia. However, it's still not in line with Russia's destabilization goals there. That's why Kremlin is, is keeping reusing the same beaten in line the Ukraine must talk directly to Moscow proxies. You may have heard President Zelensky recently offered Putin to meet and talk about Donbass. Putin replied quite cynically, he was ready to meet and discuss the restoration of bilateral relations with Ukraine, but would leave the conflict itself out of of the agenda. Funny fact, Russians never actually asked us peacefully, kindly, to give the beloved Crimea back that they loved so much. And nobody, nobody was bringing up the issue Issues of other territories of Ukraine, which were handed over in 1954 when Crimea ended up in Russian Socialist Republic at that time. But that's all story of long, long past. But Russia is so eager to use this just because Russov was Ukrainian national. Of course, he handed over Crimea to Ukraine. But seriously, as a concern of the second part of your question, the situation both Crimea and Donbass is quite big. These territories have been slowly, have both been slowly transformed into something very much different, out of place in the 21st century. Donbass is sort of a gray zone of long-lasting civilian conflict. Crimea is an unsinkable aircraft carrier under almost martial law with grossly gross violations of human rights of Ukrainian citizens, especially Crimean Tatars, and quite bleak prospects of tourism or any other businesses, agriculture included. The local population finds itself in a peculiar limbo, with many people just holding the line and trying to survive through this lost time. Some await the return of the Ukrainian authorities, others hope for the areas to be absorbed into Russia, and that Russia will step up in the presence to help them return to pre-war conditions. But the problem is actually is different. The Kremlin is always very pragmatic, whatever it gets involved to, in most cases, just cheap. Because of the economy size less than in Spain, they can provide what they, what they promised to this part of the of, of Ukrainian territory. Russia concentrates only on the points where it's own with its own interest, while the locals are perceived as a little a little more than just merely cannon meat. Consequently, local economies are in catastrophic drought, especially in Donbass. Their methods are rather identical both occupied Crimea and Donbas. Passportization as this as a weapon, disinformation, indoctrination, and fake news twenty four seven, changing the demographic makeup. Demographic makeup. Moscow is making sure the locals, who are by all accounts Ukrainian citizens, get Russian passports. Russia will later use this as a justification for war, protecting its own citizens. One can turn around in Isaac, Donbass, or Crimea without producing Russian passport. The latest Russian innovation is Putin's degree prohibiting foreigners from owning land in Ukraine, which effectively means that they are stripping Ukrainian tatars, Crimean tatars, and Ukrainian nationals who resist being forced into Russian citizenship of their real estate titles. So that's the aim. And the aim of information policies is very close to it, is to recreate, it's not even modern Russia, it's pseudo-Soviet euphoria coupled with brutal anti-Ukraine, anti-Western hysteria. A whole generation of young kids is growing in the occupied areas whose worldwide reminds of the Soviet kids. Thousands of ethnic Russians have been relocating to Crimea in a bid to create a Russian majority and claim the peninsula as Russian de facto. This, by the way, is war crime under international law. To address the multiple challenges stemming from the Russian occupation in Crimea, Ukraine is launching the international Crimea platform. This overarching goal is to consolidate international efforts towards creating such a condition that will ultimately lead to the occupation of Ukraine's territory. We hope that UK, which was signalling already its readiness to take a leading role in the Crimea platform, will take part in the inaugural summit this year at the highest political level.
0: Ambassador Pristayko, um volatile security situation in Ukraine gained more attention in recent weeks as an estimated almost 100,000 Russian soldiers had amassed near Ukraine's border and also in Crimea. After weeks of tension, Russian Defense Minister Shoigu has ordered a number of units in the area back to their bases. But despite this announcement from Moscow, Earlier this week, the head of Ukraine's state security, Mr. Bakhanov, claimed that the troops and military hardware still remain next to Ukraine's border. Could you please tell us more about the, the current situation?
1: Yes, that's, that's our observations of what actually is happening right now around the Ukrainian borders. Don't forget that by the our treaty with Russians, Russian fleet and all the 20,000 of the soldiers had to stay in Ukraine until 2017, which is long overdue. It was a limited number of people, now has been doubled. We are talking about the personnel, but we have to also consider the, the armor, the the uh, air, airplanes, the the rockets, which can, from Crimea itself, reach any, any corner of the European territory. They are enriching, they are ensuring that they've been entrenched in the Crimean peninsula really hard. We have uh, evidences that they are trying to rebuild the facilities previously known to hold the nuclear weapons. This is totally changing the equation, the security equation in this part of the globe. It's not just Ukraine territory. This we, now we are talking about much more global scale of the changes of the security. So that's that's how it looks from the from the south of Ukraine. We are also considering the forces around the Ukrainian western western parts, and that's what our military and security chiefs were talking about. But let's not forget about our east borders in Transnistria, where the so-called 14th Army is still lingering lingering after almost 30 years when they missed the day when it had to be withdrawn, when Soviet Union collapsed. So the the situation is quite dire. And what what Ukraine is trying to bring to to attention to all our allies and partners that sooner or later, this bubble around ukraine will burst and who knows what what will come out of it whether the russians are here just to you know to threaten us and make us into the negotiations or sooner or later the uh, rifle on the wall will shoot and we will have we will find ourselves again in a very hot stage of the conflict
0: so we know that Ukraine um, is a state bordering Russia. And of course, uh, a lot of people here in the UK, they think that this is also um, kind of a gateway to Europe for Russia. Um, how important is Ukraine for, you, for European security, in your view?
1: You know, the answer lies in the, in the question itself. Security of Europe today directly depends on the situation in the biggest by territory land, by total square mileage, which is Ukrainian territory. There are at least two aspects to bear in mind when we consider this: classic security considerations and the shared values. It depends on which one you put first. Let me start with the more holistic approach. Ukraine demonstrated that time and time and again its dedication and adherence to the same values that are common to the whole Europe and wider. Democracy, human rights, the rule based order, etc. Surely, there is no denying that we have a set of problems ourselves. However, our society is inherently part of Europe, part of European culture, discourse, if I may use this fancy term. If Ukraine, a nation that has opted for the Western values, ended up failing just because a mightier foreign aggressor cared to invade, then the democratic values lose lots of their appeal to the rest of Europe and ultimately the whole world by the way, Russia itself. If Ukraine is left out to its own devices and West values are allowed to succumb to the commonplace bullying then no one is safe in Europe or around the globe. From a more hard security point of view, though, any conflict have a potential to spill over and become elevated to regional, even global wars. This has been a case in Europe in the past. The last time Europe encountered similar threats was during just Yugoslav wars. However, during those times, European allies were ready to provide a decisive collection response. Over the last seven years, Ukraine has proved that it can play as an effective in checking Russia and effectively counteracting its hybrid warfare, but at the same time being responsible and reasonable not to provoke further aggression and escalation. Thus, Ukraine can be a valid partner for NATO and the global security and intelligence platforms. This is particularly important today, as most states define Russia as a serious threat to stability in Europe. And, and here, Ukraine expertise and even experience could complement the rest of Europe's effort in countering the Russian threat. We are convinced that it's the high time to extend to Ukraine the NATO membership action plan, the certain NATO's outer door Ukraine has been knocking for quite a while.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, I recall that back in 2008 summit in Bucharest, NATO recognized Ukraine's aspirations to join the alliance and stated that the country would one day become a member. Uh, It was the same case for Georgia. And at the time, some people said that not granting Kiev and Tbilisi an action plan would help to calm Russia down. Since then, of course, much has changed uh, in the region and including Russia's occupation of Crimea and the proxy war in Donbass. So maybe the membership plan is really long overdue. And what steps would you expect to be taken?
1: Well, uh, you know, you you very rightly pointing. and I hope that our listeners will, will have this long history of a long, long memory of the history. And just to be correct, we, we have to also remind ourselves that in the same, the same decision we were quoting, there was another part where leaders authorized their ministers of Foreign Affairs by the end of 2008 check and then and, and come with the assessment whether Ukraine and Georgia are ready for membership action plan so it was not it was not a refusal they just have it postponed to the end of the year unfortunately because Russia also Russia also received this this message and the same year just a couple of months after the summit in Bucharest itself they invaded Georgia effectively banning this nation. And then the same happened to Ukraine. So what we expect now is just we can return back to the what is written in the paper, in, in, in the summit declaration. We hope that ministers of foreign affairs or whoever is authorized by the leaders, leaders again, maybe leaders themselves on the 14th of, of uh, next month when they will sit around the North Atlantic Council table to assess how Ukraine and Georgia are ready for membership action plan and give this advice, military advice and political advice. So leaders might take a decision to actually invite Ukraine. We also have uh, you know, uh, suggestions towards the summit uh, of G7, which will happen just before the summit of NATO, where leaders can discuss, we hope they will discuss, what is happening in Ukraine. We have this sort of unspoken rule that nothing is decided of Ukraine without Ukraine's presence. So they might want to invite us at the table and listen for the President Zelensky what is his personal view how, on how leaders of G7 can help and then how leaders of NATO can help. Finally, nobody wants to be in this, in this situation for, for eternity. We have to find a way out. And, and I have to tell you that Ukraine is not low-hanging fruit. It's not easier to deal with Ukraine. We have to understand that conflict is rooted not from Ukraine by itself, but from the Russian sort of view of all Ukraine. And not much can be changed from Ukraine, regardless of the attempts of President Zelensky. So both sides are trying their best, but I believe that Russia can do much better. And this is the role for our European colleagues and our colleagues from United States, Japan, and Canada, to remind Russia and to make, I don't know, painful enough for them with sanctions, with, with their contacts, to allow Ukraine to, to live up to what it's expecting to build out of itself, to just, just be.
0: So the G7 summit is coming up in June. Do you expect any concrete proposals to be offered from the G7 countries leaders to solve the ongoing crisis and also to dissuade future aggression from Russia?
1: There's been there's certainly been a discussion. What can what what can happen? How can Ukraine be helped? There are different ways. Some of G7 members will, will tell and that's also true that there are so many other problems around the globe that G7 uh, help and assistance needed elsewhere, or everywhere, uh, that uh, Britain, uh, that uh, Germany and France, they are actually doing their best in Minsk and Normandy format, helping Ukraine. And they can expect the assistance of all G7 members in this, in this endeavor. But there can be different sort of approach. We have been uh, helped by negotiations, political negotiations, which have been uh, going to more or less nowhere. We still are lacking some of the resources needed for us to, first of all, defense ourselves as, as any other nation. We still are still lacking the uh, uh, weapons to be able to defend ourselves. At the same time, those who, who opted not to provide Ukraine with weapons, I don't know, fearing that Ukraine might, might go berserk and you know, invade Russia and burn down the Kremlin, I don't know what they believe. These nations can help with I don't know, financing the reconstruction of Ukraine, becoming Ukraine better than it is sort of Marshall Plan was was thrown in the discussion for so many times already and been rejected. So there are there are different different methods to support Ukraine, to help Ukraine, to you know lean on Russia to to, to, to build up better better alliances, better solutions. That sort of things we're expecting from G seven leaders. And that's why we believe it will be better to listen to President Zelensky himself. It's not a big deal. Ten minutes of this conversation kind of will do.
0: Absolutely. During one of our recent events, um, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges also highlighted the need to stand up to Moscow and he, he highlighted the fact that nobody will stop Moscow if we won't do that. So, hopefully, G7 meeting will bear some fruit and concrete proposals will be, will be put on the table how to deal with, with the ongoing aggression from Russia. Thank you so much, Ambassador Pristaiko, for a fascinating conversation. And thank you so much to our listeners. This is Geostrategy 360, the Council on Geostrategy podcast, which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people, and experts. You can listen to Geostrategy 360 on all major podcast platforms, and you can find all our podcasts on our website www.geostrategy.org.uk slash podcasts.